That's a very kind introduction. It's good to be with you guys today in the choir room. All of you guys have a choir room in your church plant, don't you? Uh, this is fantastic. Uh, I am Tony Maritas and Nate Aiken. Nate's one of our elders. We have three elders slash pastors. We use those terms interchangeably uh, at our church plant. And um, like, huh? As does the Bible. And uh, uh, we've been, sorry, I got off track. Uh, we've planted, we, we launched September 11th. And so uh, this September we're planning on our, uh, having like a birthday party and um, uh, having some baptisms. Last Sunday, we had uh, 255 people uh, in corporate worship, which is uh, amazing and has exceeded our expectations. But what's even more amazing and really is evidence of God's grace uh, in this uh, plant is uh, over 50% of our um, members uh, and attenders really are college students. And uh, many of them are away, which means we're getting more older people uh, that have jobs and uh, shirts with buttons. And so that's really exciting that we're actually beginning to see a little more diversity. Um, And so we certainly are not experts when it comes to church planting. Uh, We could do a session on mistakes we made in year one, but that would be like a three-volume series. So we're going to give you 13 lessons that we've learned. We tried to really harness these lessons in. Uh, Nate and I spent some time in Ukraine recently recently teaching uh, some church planters, and we just sat down uh, at a restaurant and tried to decide what would be the top lessons that we've learned. We tried to cram them in as much as possible. Some of these are uh, pretty obvious. Um, most of them, I hope, are driven by the Bible. Uh, we're, we're Bible guys, and so we've, we've tried to uh, develop our church uh, within the pattern of the New Testament. Uh, some of it, though, I, I should say, is opinion and experience, and so there there will probably be some points in which you uh, might disagree, and we're, we certainly aren't saying that everybody should do everything we're exactly doing, but they ask us to share about lessons learned, so these are our lessons. So maybe you use one out of 13, uh, that would be okay. Uh, it's been a really interesting year uh, for us. As mentioned, uh, I moved to uh, Southeastern to teach, and over the last three years, adopted five kids, and we planted a church. And so it's been a, an amazing year. One of the lessons that is not on here is, like, get a good chiropractor when you d- set out to uh, plant a church uh, because there's going to be lots of tension. Um, so with all that said, let's get into it. Number one is remember that it's all about Jesus. Um, this is the ultimate goal of church planting, just as it is the ultimate goal of all of life. Uh, this really doesn't need to be said. But it is very easy, once you get on the field, to abandon theology for shallow pragmatism. And it's absolutely essential that we keep our eye on the ball. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul told Timothy. Uh, How could you ever forget Jesus? (laughs) Well, you forget your car keys, you forget your name, you forget a lot of stuff. And you can forget that which is essential and eternal and most important as well. And so every day, preach the gospel to yourself. Every day, remember that your identity, your joy, your fulfillment is in the Savior. So that will keep you from two ditches that you want to stay out of in church planting. One is pride, and the other is despair. If your focus is, up, is on Jesus, it will keep you out of despair because you're not basing your identity and your worth on uh, church planting and church growth standards, but you're basing it upon pleasing Jesus. It'll also keep you from uh, pride in that if things are going well, it's not because you're so gifted and intelligent. It's because Jesus is gracious. Uh, so we want to keep that central. Uh, and what this also means is that we want to judge success differently from the rest of the world. And that success in Jesus's eyes might look like failure to other people. And so from the very beginning, we set out at Imago Day to 
pleased Jesus above all, and we wanted to plant a church that endured throughout generations. Uh, and so that's principle number one. And I'm going to kind of hand it off back and forth to Nate to elaborate and say a few of these points. Yeah, and on that, the only thing I would add in the pragmatism ca- uh, category is we, we are hoping that we have planted a church that's going to last 100 years, not 10 years. And so the goal oftentimes with a plant is let's get as many people as quickly as we can. And we're saying we want to do things so that we are making disciples 50 years from now and not just making disciples 10 years from now. And some of the things that we're going to go through here in a minute will kind of it's driven by that that idea that we are hoping to be a sustaining influence in the city of Raleigh and not maybe like a flash in the pan kind of thing. So. And we're going to have questions at 1145. That's our goal is just to talk to 1145. So as we hit these, you probably have questions. And what I, what I should say as well is that it is not though we're not wanting a big church. We, we are. We want to see people come to know Jesus. Uh, we just don't want those things to be idols in our lives. And so we want to keep uh, Christ central. Number two, uh, plant with a team of pastors. This has been so important to us from the very beginning. Um, we not only think plurality of elders is biblical, but we think it's very wise and practically important for many reasons. Um, it will protect you from mistakes you'll make as a lone pastor. Uh, everyone doesn't have the same type of gifts in a, in a pastorate. Some are prophets, some are priests, some are kings. And uh, Jesus did them all perfectly, but everybody else doesn't. And so uh, we have a prophet. That's, that's me. I'm the, the, the main preacher, teacher. Nate does small group, discipleship, member care. Uh, multiplication of future church planners and we have an engineer who's 40 years old works from home uh, graduated from seminary everybody needs him he's our administrator finance guy Uh, he he knows how to operate microsoft excel has a clipboard those types of things so uh, we call him footnote everybody needs him in in your church plan and so i don't know what would have happened if i tried to do this whole thing by myself and i see guys who are just getting killed uh, who are going out parachuting in uh, is it possible to make it with that? Sure. Um, but I, I really am a big fan of team planting. And also I would add with that the, uh, you know, considering being bivocational team planters, um, I think that's the most sustainable model for planting the maximum number of churches. There are a few guys who can go into a city and be blessed with, you know, $80,000 from a sending church and they can make it. Uh but most of the guys that will plant, uh, I think, will benefit by actually planting with a team of guys, splitting whatever support you get. And then hopefully in the future you could all be full-time. But I think your tent making will also help you do outreach and evangelism. And so that's the model that we're commending to all of our guys. We have nine guys who are interns who we hope to plant. And we're encouraging them actually after seminary to get another degree. We have one guy going back to get an engineering degree, one guy going to NC State to get a master's in education so he can teach in a city. And so that's the model that we're trying to perpetuate uh, at our church, a team planting model, which will help uh, also just make your job more enjoyable. Uh, Church planting, I think, is a team sport. It's best played in a team. And uh, the demands are serious, and so that will really help you. Um, it also guards against sacrificing your family, and which is uh, which will be a great temptation. It will help you share the shepherding responsibilities of the church. It'll help ensure doctrinal integrity, um, as elders are accountable to one another for what they teach. And I think it will also reinforce the idea that Jesus is the senior pastor and not a person. Um, that people will get the picture that uh, we are under shepherds who are accountable to the chief shepherd. 
Uh, and so we've tried to pattern that and model that. We've also tried to guard against the rock star pastor model that perpetuates the Christian subculture, uh, that people would not see that the church is built upon a personality, um, but it's built upon servant leaders who share responsibility. Um, we also think this is the best model for continuity in the future. Should one of the pastors leave, uh, the best way, I think, to continue on is just to keep sharing the responsibilities like you were and uh, moving on. Um, so what makes a good team? Here are four things we think makes a really good team. And this has probably made my job, uh, this, is, this one thing's made my job, uh, this is the most enjoyable part of my job, is having a good team in which we have theological unity. Uh, there's, there's nothing Nate and I disagree on except college football and uh, nothing of great significance. Philosophical unity, that is on how you do church, how you want to do church in terms of methodology. We think there's, you know, flexibility in methods, but I think it's important that you agree as a group how you want to do it. Uh, so that, that goes for things like small groups and, and those types of things. Thirdly, relational harmony, that you actually like each other uh, and you, you want to spend time together. And I would just commend that as well. And then finally, competency. You need a team that actually does something. Uh, most of you probably experienced that before, right? We've got guys you agree with theologically and philosophically, but they just don't execute. And three months down the road, you're like, hey, that didn't get done. Uh, so you need guys who actually uh, get stuff uh, done. So that's number two, plant with the team. That's been really, really important to us. Number three, we have invest in the core team. And uh, so what we'd say is you need to be cautious here. A lot of times it's kind of ideal if somebody has a pulse and they love Jesus that they should be on your core team and they should go with you, especially if you're going to a tough context, maybe like a Boston or New York. But we would say be very cautious about who you put on your core team. This is going to be the backbone of your church from the very, very beginning. And so you need to, to really invest in them. And the way we did this was through in-home. We just started meeting in, in Tony's home and then in our other elders' home. We would meet in-home, talk about our mission, our vision, our values, and we're really just trying to instill the DNA into to our core team. And we'd take trips with them and we'd fellowship. And so we spent a lot of time trying to develop, here's, here's what we want to be about and here's what it looks like to be a part of what we're going to do. We made them go through an assessment to be on to be on the core team. Um, we told people no, they couldn't be on the core team, and uh, and that really helped us as we began to plan. And they and this these group of this group of people has been the like key leaders in our church for the last year. And uh, if we did not have them, I, I don't know how we would do what we're doing. Uh, you have anything you'd like to add to that? The, the fourth one that kind of comes right out of that is set clear expectations for potential members set clear expectations for potential members. And we did this, like I said, initially for the core team in an assessment and things like that. But we we hold as one of our highest uh, values that covenant membership would matter. And that's why we use the term covenant membership because we're trying to make a distinguishing, you know, remark between this is what membership has typically looked like in the local church and here's what we think it should look like. And so we have a pretty intense covenant membership process, which basically looks like um, a, a membership class, an interview or an assessment by one of the elders, and then a signing of this covenant that we have. And we hold them accountable for things like attendance and giving and, and uh, serving and, and just a lot of things that we hold them accountable for. Uh, to, and as we say, here, we're going to set the standard and the bar really, really high because we think Christians that are going to try to hit that bar. And we've seen them live up to it. Now, you'll probably have some folks that leave over this, and we've had some folks leave because they didn't really like covenant membership. But we're saying this is what we're about. And uh, you can kind of use Dever's book on poly, a display of God's glory. Like we believe the church is to display God's glory in the city of Raleigh. And so 
We want to be the best display of that we can be. And so we want to say this means something to be a part of this family. And uh, Tony uh, tweeted a quote I said last week, and I just think it's sad that most of the time we hold higher expectations for frat members than we do people that are members of a local church. And that and that's a tragedy because to be a part of this, what Ephesians 3 calls an unveiling of the mystery of the universe is an important thing. And so we want to hold uh, you know, clear expectations and high expectations for what it means to be a part of the local church. And one other thing I would add to that, just kind of a side note, is we would highly recommend, and, and we, we understand that some people disagree with us on this, that you make people that serve at, at your church to be covenant members, especially when it comes to people that are going to be on stage representing you in the band and things like that. Because what we've seen oftentimes is those those band members are not covenant members. They're good at what they do, and so we put them up there, but they're not covenant members, and so they live in all types of immorality, and then they're standing up there representing you on Sundays without any sense of us being able to hold them accountable. And so we've just made it clear from the beginning, like, there is a distinction between being a part of what we're doing and not being a part of what we're doing. And like Acts 2 says, they knew who was a part of, they knew who was part of their number and they knew who was not. And so we're accountable for shepherding them and we're going to be held accountable by God for shepherding them. And so we want to know who's in what we're doing, who wants to be a part and who's not. And we're hoping that by making these expectations that they'll say, I, I want to be a part of that. Like, I, I want to be a part of that family. And so we, we set high uh, expectations for our members. Amen. That's good. Um, number five, plant the church you've always wanted to go to. This is sagely advice from Larry Osborne. Um, it might sound self-serving, but it's not intended to be. Uh, what what I mean by that is I think you're most gifted to lead the type of church that you'd want to be a member of. And so, like, a lot of guys set out, I think, to plant someone else's church or they set out to plant a church that they think might reach people. But I think the church you're, you'll be most gifted to lead and the church you'll lead intuitively is the church you'd really want to go to. And I think that'll be the church that you want to spend the rest of your life at. That's what I say about Imago Day. Like, I could never see leaving Imago Day because it's like me. It's part of me. It's an extension of everything that I've wanted to do for the last 10 years, you know, uh, in dreaming what a church plant would look like. Um, and so plant the church you'd want to uh, go to. You don't have a lot of advantages as a church planner, like money, but you do have this one, okay? You have no tradition, so go for it. And what that meant for us is that we all wanted to do the Lord's Supper every week, so start doing that, you know? We wanted to uh, recite the Apostles' Creed every week, so we do that. We uh, wanted to have small group uh, that, that met in homes uh, instead of, you know, classes on Sunday, so we did that. Everything that we felt like we really wanted to do that was flexible and it's, you know, methodology, um, but it's something that we were uh, happy to do is, is what we, we set out to do from the, from the very beginning. Another thing that we wanted to be was a multiplying church. So that meant from the very beginning we set, you know, uh, uh, disciplines that would help us multiply. And having pastored a church in a more traditional context, I always wanted to multiply leaders, but I never had a context to do that in that would make me do it. And so I had great intentions, but after a month, it just tanked. And so from the beginning, we said every Monday, we're going to invest in our leaders who will be potential planters. And so that that could easily get lost, you know, early on in a church plant. And you, it's not necessarily going to be possible for you to do it immediately when you plant a church. But soon after, I would just say build in a discipline for you as a, as a leader to be multiplying. 
And so what that means for us is Mondays from 8 to 11, we have nine interns that we hope to be sending out. We've taken trips already to Boston, and uh, we have a couple going to Rhode Island uh, pretty soon. We've sort of adopted New England and just trying to send guys up there. Uh, and so it, that, that's uh, this multiplying church is what we want to be. And so plant the church you've always wanted to go to, and that's the one I think you'll stay at forever. Number six is don't give leadership away too quickly. And, uh, again, just like with the core team, you want to be cautious who you put on that. You want to be very cautious who you give leadership to. Um, we have been blessed to have heard this advice from others, and so we've avoided it, but we've had some folks that we knew that were planning along the same time we were that have had some really disastrous results from giving uh, leadership away too quickly. Uh, one did something silly like a guy <laughs> spiked the punch at a Christmas party that was a small group leader, and he's like, you want to be very cautious. That's not the guy you're giving leadership to. Who's, who's acting like a 16-year-old and is supposed to be, yeah, yeah. So don't give it away too quickly. So that means risk having small groups that are too big um, early on, That bef- making sure you have qualified leaders so that you can multiply and have qualified leaders in place. And the other thing I would add, and I get this from a professor at Southeastern who had a big impact on me, is you look for people that are fat, and he says, faithful, available, and teachable. So you want guys in your church that are already showing that they can serve the body. That means doing things like watching the children, picking up. That They're showing that they're not there just to have a leadership position, but they're there to care and serve the body. And so faithful, available, teachable, and I would add to that, and it's kind of wrapped up in that, is humble. Guys that are showing humility. Uh, and that's just kind of the characteristics of an elder. It's, you know, the ability of an elder is very low on the, on the um, quality list, and then the character of that leader is very high. And so you have one thing about the ability to teach, and the rest of them are character issues. And so look for, for folks that have um, that kind of character. Number seven is uh, we, would, we would advise start small groups early and invest in small group leaders. Um, we have some friends that have you know, waited years to start or a year to start small groups, and we would say start that from the beginning. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, we really wanted to teach our people that the church is not a building and it's not an event. And so for us, starting small groups was more important to us than even our corporate launch that we had. Because the launch is that event, but we wanted to tell them that to be a part of Imago Day means to be a part of a people that are hopefully bringing glory to God in the city of Raleigh. And so we wanted to start that from the beginning. And as Tony said, we also wanted to, to invest in those small group leaders immediately. We wanted to kind of build in this culture of Second Timothy 2, too, that we are passing on what we have been taught so that they can pass on what they've been taught to others as well. And so build that in in the beginning. If you don't, it'll be easy for that to be the thing that gets squeezed out. And so we meet with our guys on Monday for about three hours. We, we have a program we call Aspire. We meet with them for three hours going through the vision of the church and then just pastoral ministry type things that we want to go through so that they can eventually be like replace us as elders and then be church planners that we send out. And so you want to always be multiplying yourself. And this is a way you can just practically do it by investing in your small group leaders. Um, also, we've been told this is a strength of Imago Day from others because there have got, we have had guys come to Imago Day that were growth, small group leaders. We call them growth groups, but small group leaders at other churches. And they never had interaction with the elders of that church. So they never had interaction with the leadership of the church. And you're just never going to be able to give your vision and your mission to your people if you're not investing in the people they're going to see every week. And so we are trying to every week teach our small group leaders, like, this is what we want to be about. This is the issues we see right now. Here are the, you know, the positives we see right now. And so we want to be constantly teaching them this is what we want to be about and have them kind of carry that out in our, in our small groups. Uh, number eight is teach your people to be missionaries. Um, I think it's essential, and you guys know this quite well, to uh, be building a a missionary culture 
uh, in your church. Uh, we tell our people that you are our plan. Um, and one of the ways we've encouraged our people to love their neighbor is by practicing gospel-centered hospitality. Uh, and that is basically to invite people to dinner two or three times a week. It sounds radical, I know. Um, and this is really how our church has grown. This is the primary way our church has grown is through people trying to befriend their neighbors and have a barbecue and invite them to uh, corporate worship. And it's not just, you know, a method. It's really the method that Jesus used. Um, Tim Chester wrote a great book called A Meal with Jesus in which he poses the question, how would you finish this sentence? The Son of Man came, and he says in Luke, you know, it's answered by he came to seek, save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and he came eating and drinking. And, and Chester makes the point that the first two explain why Jesus came, and the third explains how he came, uh, that he came befriending Zacchaeus and Levi uh, at a table. Uh, and Luke's gospel in particular is just loaded with examples of Jesus having meals with people. Uh, in fact, there's a book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel by Robert Karras, in which he says that in Luke's gospel, either Jesus is either at a meal, coming from a meal, or going to a meal, uh, all through the gospel of Luke. And so we've just commended that to our people, sort of the Luke 14 model. Of, hey, if you're going to have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, because they can't repay you, but you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That to be looking for the marginalized and the poor and the international students who never attend or never go into an American home and be very quick to, to be inviting them. So with that, on the missionary culture, uh, when we covenant with people in membership, they, they come to the, the front and we introduce them to the body. And Nate always says, we're also commissioning you as missionaries to the city of Raleigh. So what that is doing, hopefully, is reminding them that they're a missionary, but also the whole body. Those that are covenant members are hearing that every week, that you are missionaries to the city of Raleigh. Uh, Number nine, expect support from unlikely partners. Uh, Man, we sent out really glossy prospectus, you know, and a lot of big churches and... And we didn't get it from there. Uh, we, we got support from actually young pastors who love church planning who were broke. Uh, and we got it from uh, small churches who didn't necessarily have big budgets. And we got it from guys we didn't even, had never even met before. Uh, and so do send them out everywhere, I would say. But don't be surprised if support doesn't come from some of the places where you thought it would come from. And that's not to, uh, you know, to, to sound bitter towards the, these guys. Many of them were already giving to, you know, tons of missions. So we were just, uh, it was interesting to me to observe uh, who's got church planting in their budget. Uh, normally it's church planners. <laughs> and you might ought to start there with your church planning efforts in raising support rather than uh, other other places. Um and we did get, I should say, since I'm at NAM, the most support from NAM. So let's just throw a bone there to NAM because we, we love NAM, all right? Uh, number 10, lead from the pulpit. Um, lead from the pulpit. Uh, we, uh, we love to preach the Bible. Uh, Nate preaches long sermons, and uh, I only preached an hour and four minutes Sunday. But uh, that was a record. Um, but I would say, in addition to teaching the Bible and exalting Jesus every week, let the vision of the church drip from the pulpit. Um, practice the drip method of preaching, if you will. Like in your application of your exposition, I would encourage you to let the vision of the church drip there rather than holding it off for one sermon every year. 
like here's the vision, you know, sermon, and half the people aren't there and they just don't remember it. But rather every week, just a little bit. You don't want to drown them with it every week. They'll get tired of it. But you do need to drip it, you know, a little bit. So we have a peace plan. That's sort of our global mission strategy. Um, We kind of ripped it off from Rick Warren. Uh, Plant churches, evangelize the world, aid the poor and the sick, care for the orphan and the oppressed, and equip leaders. And that just kind of drips, you know, every week down in the sermon. Um, with that, too, we want to be a gospel-centered church. So we uh, we take communion every week um, because, well, one, we think that's the New Testament pattern. But, but secondly, we want everything we do to set be, we want the worship experience to be saturated with gospel. And so I think the pulpit is how you preach to the ear and communion is how you preach to the eye. And we want both of those to be saturated. So it's just amazing. Every week, my seven-year-old from Ethiopia goes home and I ask him what he learned from the sermon. And he doesn't remember much about the sermon, but he remembers communion. And he can tell me about the torn body of Jesus and the blood that was spilled. And so if you want to saturate it with gospel, your church, if that's the vision, let it drip, let it be, let it permeate, you know, in corporate worship. Number 11, I would add to that, be sensitive to the unchurched. Um, a lot of guys who are, are um, love theology and theologically driven uh, often neglect this, I think, uh, in terms of just being sensible to uh, unchurched people. That, that means good signage and defining your terms and showing hospitality and, and all of those things. And I would add, even in your preaching, to have a few asides in which you just occasionally step off to the side and say, hey, if you're new to the church or you're new to, you don't know much about, just speak to them. Have a few moments where you you're, you're speaking directly to that unchurched person, and the indirect result of that will be it'll teach your people how to do that. It'll it'll also encourage them to bring their friends because they know the pastor will talk to them. You know, Tim Keller says if you preach to the the skeptic, the unchurched guy, they'll eventually show up, either because they hear someone's talking to them or their friends believe you'll talk to them and they'll bring them. But if they come and it just is a Christian subculture sermon with language that's only for the insiders, they'll just kind of come and feel like, hey, this is really not for us. This is, a, this is for a different group. And so, uh, you know, I think the, the focus should be really on the body, but I think there should be good moments, maybe in the introduction, in the application, where you're addressing, you know, the, the unchurched directly. So that's number 11. Number 12. Yeah, and I would add just to that real quickly, make sure when you do things like the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Supper that you clearly explain understanding there are people there that have never done that. Even if it sounds redundant to your people, there are people in the room that have no idea why you quote the Apostles' Creed. And so each week, Tony will give, a, or whoever's leading in that will explain, here's one of the reasons we do this. We're a, a new church with an old message. We stand in a long line. And so we just try to always explain the things that we do. Number 12 is don't be surprised if people leave. Um you know, a lot of the books on church planning will tell you that you lose like half your core team. Um, we've been very, very blessed to not not see that happen. I think part of the reason is because we had such a strenuous um, assessment process for those that would be in the core team. But we have seen people leave, and uh, it'll, it'll happen for a variety of reasons. You'll have those that, that probably love one aspect of your vision, so they may like the justice ministry aspect, but they don't really care for covenant membership or small groups or commitment to the body. And so you just have to be aware. There will be people that are going to seem like they are all in. They're there to help you with your adoption ministry, and then the next week they are they're nowhere to be found. And uh, and that's, that's because they like a certain part, but they don't like all of it. And then the other thing is uh, that we've already mentioned is, you know, losing. They're looking for leadership and you don't give it to them too quickly. And so they they bail out. Uh, And uh, and so just be very, very cautious about that. 
but you'll lose people. Don't don't be uh, afraid of that. And so I'd say just back to number, point number one, like don't be fearful. Like you're so stressed out about getting to being self-sustaining that you worry about losing people. And so you, you know, compromise or that you compromise to get people to come because you're going to have to keep doing that to keep them and to, to get them to come. And so don't be fearful to lose people. It's going to happen. One of the ways we've seen this is we, we try to be very um, direct when we see things that, that are kind of a detriment to the body. So we or we see them needing some area of growth in their life. We will have sit down. I call face to face awkward conversations where we will sit down and, and really try to press in on somebody about what's going on. And, and, you know, a lot of times you have really great results from that and there's restoration and, and it's there. They become even better members to the body. And then sometimes we have people leave and they don't like that kind of face-to-face confrontation. But that's what the Bible tells us to do. And so, like, we would highly recommend just be ready to have those kind of conversations. I mean, you are their shepherd. And being a shepherd means at times encouraging them and at times it means rebuking them. And so just be prepared uh, to have those conversations and to see it go really, really well and to see it go uh, really poorly as well. Finally, number 13, uh, be prepared, work hard, and rest in Christ. All those are important. Um, preparation is obvious. Uh, it seems that a lot of guys, I think, are a little too quick to go plant, um, almost like one-and-done basketball players. Um, you know, once you graduate seminary, you're now qualified to plant. I would say mm, you might want to think, rethink that. Uh, just because you have a degree doesn't mean you're ready to plant. Um, I started in the Nehemiah Project in 2000 at New Orleans and finally planted this year. <laughs> I don't think you need 10 years uh, necessarily. But I do, th- I do think you can rush it and get yourself in a lot of trouble and not be prepared. So it's going to be different for every guy. Um, but we encourage our guys, in addition to theological training, to go be, be on a field with a planter maybe for a year or two. Um, but if you're going to do this the rest of your life, what, what's two or three more years of thorough preparation, careful preparation? There are going to be plenty of churches to be planted in three years. So calm down. Make sure you're ready, you know, get your ecclesiology straight, figure out what you do want to do with child care, you know, work on your preaching skills. All of those things are so important that you nail it down. We have our interns write papers, like little two-page papers you can put in your back pocket on issues we know they're going to have to address in a church. So they, they, they have to write a, a position paper on divorce and remarriage, uh, the use of alcohol, uh, worship philosophy, uh, homosexuality and gender issues, and... Uh, church polity and we want them to be really want them really know what they believe about these things before they get on the field and not try to figure it out you know once they once they get there um and then i would also add as i I mentioned there to you have to work hard there's a there's uh now some guys need to take a nap you already work hard you kill it uh and you need to learn to rest uh but but planting is more like farming it's not sexy it's it's not glorious it's it's just not uh and so you have to go to the grind you know every day uh and do that and then finally just keep resting in jesus pray with childlike faith you know trusting the lord to provide for you find your identity and joy and rest in him um that's who you're accountable to um so those are some lessons that we've learned uh, in year one. We're going to post this on uh, my blog, uh, TonyMarita.net, as well as our church blog, uh, IDCRaleigh.com, and Baptist 21 as well, because Nate's Baptist. <laughs> oh, good. We were flying, but we want to give you time for questions. Yeah, uh, IDC. 
Raleigh.com. And then, yes. Mago Day. Yeah, we just, uh, it's a name my wife and I settled on in 2005. We almost planted in 05 with Nam and, and it didn't work. Um, and uh, we, we wanted the theological conviction that people are made in God's image, therefore everybody's worthy of love and dignity and respect. And so we really want to have a diverse, you know, intergenerational, racially diverse church. We want to care for the poor and the orphan and uh, and human, victims of trafficking. And so we just think Imago Day drives so much of what we want to do. So that's that's why we called it that. Yeah. What, what we do is uh, every pastor has a title. So my, I'm pastor for preaching and vision. Nate's pastor for disciple-making. Matt is pastor for administration and member care. And so we kind of try to define the roles just so people know. But in terms of, like, decision-making, I would say they probably make even more than I do. Uh, and so we're, uh, we're a, it's a very flat model instead of a triangle model. I, I'm the primary preacher, you know, uh, and the, the primary vision caster. So if you want to call that the primary leader, okay, we just don't really see it like that, you know. I guess it, it depends on what the primary leader's doing. Uh, is he the vision guy or is he actually doing the work? <laughs> uh, see, you know, executing the vision. So I would say he's just as much a leader, you know. Yeah. I would rather have a disagreement among the elders than have a congregational mess in which they're trying to figure it out, you know. And so uh, we, we understand that's going to happen, you know. And uh, I think that's key. What I was saying earlier, that theological agreement, if we can agree on that, I, I feel like, we can we can work to a solution on practical everyday of you know issues, and it really has to have a you have to have a sense of humility and uh, uh, it's okay not to to have the final word on a thing you know like uh, those who want to control everything I could see if you have two of those guys button heads all the time that's going to be a mess you know um, and I would argue they probably need to be in different churches <laughs> you know uh, but uh, it, that's a practical question yeah. You know? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good argument right there. Like, what do you do with the kids, huh? Uh, we actually uh, want our kids in worship. Um, we tell folks, look, we think it's important that they see their parents worshiping. We don't expect them necessarily to, to remember everything. We also give them coloring sheets that go along with the sermon. My wife helps kind of develop that, and and she uh, gets illustrations and she'll do what and. Our kids actually hand out the crayons to the other kids as they come in. So, and I try to address them in the sermon as well. You know, if you're here, you know, we're in Galatians. You kids, you can pull out that little coloring thing, you know, and ask. You. So, we try to accommodate to them, but also we don't try to. We don't want them to feel like for 12 years they get lollipops, you know, for coming to church and and getting the answer right. We really want them to see a more uh, uh, holistic picture of the church. So we have childcare up to four we'll make exceptions if there are needs to make exceptions but that's that's pretty much what we do yeah first year is hard i mean we cast vision we um we're doing a child sponsorship with an organization called help one now that works in haiti and that's coming up we're having an orphan sunday on september 16th trying to uh help people this is a really cool sponsorship program you see the child all the way through college education and we'll be making trips there so they can visit the child we also are doing some fundraising for a couple that's adopting but we're still working to do local foster care ministry and we're praying that if someone actually lead that ministry our peace plan we'd love for someone to sort of spearhead those pieces and so we're we thought we had someone but they didn't like covenant membership uh so <laughs> yeah 
And so we're still working it out. We're trying to build the plane and try to fly it at the same time, you know. Yeah. I think you had your hand up a couple of Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we wanted we want everybody to come, but we don't think everyone early on, we didn't want them to be part of core team because we felt like that was going to be the DNA. Those were going to be our small group leaders, and we just wanted to pour in them early on. And after about two months, you know, of teaching our vision, theology, we took kind of fun trips together to, you know, build community. Then we said, hey, invite people, and they and we just sort of grew out from that. Um, but like Nate said, I don't I don't know how healthy we would have been early on if we didn't set aside the early days just for the core team. And that'll look different in every church because you might not have two guys on a core team. It, it may be a really small core team we're talking about uh, instead of like 16 like we had. Um, so it's it's going to be difficult. So when you add that. I would just say the risk is, regardless of whether they can make decisions, the risk is always that they can stir up dissension. And so that that can always cause heartache for you and heartache that you don't need. And so when we did the assessments on the front end, we eliminated, you know, that kind of attitude from the beginning of who was going to be a part of, of what we're doing. And we even said, like, clear things, like you will not, dis, you know, disturb the unity of what we're doing. Here's what we're about. Anything other than that, we're, you know, you don't have a say. I mean, I'd say it like that, but basically you don't have a say in anything other than this. Also, when we're talking about covenant membership, we don't have super unreachable expectations. We want people to be in corporate worship and in a sermon-based small group that meets in a home. Those are the two big things. The rest is like just attendance and basic Christianity stuff. And also with the core team on, on unity, we have nine essential beliefs that we ask them to affirm. And we say we, the elders will teach within the framework of the BFNM but you don't have to affirm that to be a member of our church. We just ask you not to create disunity when you hear disagreement, you know, but we're, you can expect us to teach within that framework. But these nine core beliefs, we believe any evangelical should adhere to. So we were not, we, we haven't set up something that's just like totally, you know, unreachable. And, and that we were trying to do the same for the core team. Um, so not now, not now. That's the same. Yeah. They were our first covenant members, our core team. We went through two months of teaching. They covenanted. They were our first members. Yeah. We did have a core team reunion. We said, don't tweet it. Don't Facebook it. Just come to our house. We're going to have a, a reunion from last June and have a barbecue. And, but I don't want you to tell anybody because we don't want you to feel like the rest are not members, you know, or whatever. Yeah, we, the in-home time together was huge. So we and we always made it ma- like not mandatory, but we always shared a meal together. And so we would we would do a time of of DNA training, and then we would just spend time together. And so that that was huge as far as building the relationships. And, and I mean, we would say like the elders are really close because of that. Uh, and then even the core team was really close. And that was what was difficult when we lost. And you have to start putting these people in different small groups, but you start training them ahead of time, saying, "Look, this is going to be difficult, but we want to multiply." And so um, that's, I mean, that's pretty much what we did to kind of, to kind of build this unity that we had. I know, let's go behind you. Yeah, that's a great question. What we did is so uh, several of the men in the core team became our first small group. In fact, the elders were at first, and then we tried to pass it off as soon as we could. But what we try to do is there's always an assistant when we when we multiply, so that there's and with the intention of you're like Second Timothy two two is your responsibility as a growth group leader to really pour into this man, so that when we are ready to multiply. He's ready to go. And so, and it's really that faithful, available, teachable thing that we're looking for. And, uh, and so that's really what we do. Like you, and then we really lean on that gr- growth group leader to tell us, yeah, we think he's ready. And so we're going to have to multiply at least four groups here in August. 
And so I just sat down with our main growth growth group leaders and said, okay, so who who's ready? And uh, and so that's really kind of how we how we did that. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally, we wouldn't divide the groups, but some of our groups got to like 25 or 26, and so it was, we had to. Ideally, I think four to six keep the continuity of that other small group in place so that they still have community. And so that's what we're hoping to do. That's why we're, we're being kind of preemptive on the ones in August because we're trying to keep some continuity between those. We don't have deacons yet, um, so I don't know. <laughs> we are – yeah, yeah, email us your stuff. Yeah. Well, what we've done for deacons is we've started to identify who those are based upon just they serve. And uh, and so we have w- one guy that we will bring forward eventually as a deacon, and then that's kind of uh, we'll, we'll develop a process. We just developed our elder process as well because we're going to be bringing on a fourth elder. And uh, so we just finished that, and that's going to be about a six-month process every time. So, yeah. Yeah. Nate's – no, I won't say that. I was going to jab Nate. He's our single elder, uh, but I'll, I'll refrain for a sake of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have a simple church is um, to guard family, and um, I just don't want to church people to death. I want them to have time during the week they can have meals with their neighbors and have time they can have meals with their own kids, you know, and, and their own family. So we've tried. Uh, so I have a growth group. My growth group meets on Sunday night, so that's it. I mean, during the week, it's family and neighbors, you know. That's that's my life. Uh, elder meetings, we meet sporadically uh, whenever we don't have set times. We just... When you're friends, you can kind of meet any time, you know, so it's always <laughs> uh, Saturday nights have been our normal time for elder meeting has been actually a strange time, but we've actually really enjoyed that. Um, so that's what I would say. Set up some schedule that's conducive for loving your kids, you know, and your wife. Yeah, we um, so we do sermon based. So we don't really like say, here's what you have to ask, because I mean, we really trust these guys. We 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 see them as future elders and planters. So. But what we've done is we meet about every month to kind of rego, you know, go through vision again, and we set up a Google group where they email, they they'll email with each other and say, "Here's what I'm thinking about asking this week," and they'll kind of bounce it off one another, um, as far as here's what the you know with the text and here's the questions we might ask out of the out of the sermon, and then uh, so that's basically now we did a we've done a summer break and we're going through Bonhoeffer's life together. Um, while we're going through Second Timothy and Titus, and so with that again, I just left it up to them um, as far as he, here's kind of the direction we want to go. But you, you're free to to lead discussion how you think's best. So up in the top, right now we have four guys that re- five guys that receive like a burger joint. Five guys that receive some funding, but none of us receive full time funding. We split basically one salary that would be for a church planner between the three elders. And then to give a little bit more of that to our guy that leads corporate worship, who will be our fourth elder, hopefully, as we select him here in a month. And then we give a little bit to um, a guy that we have coming in to do outreach. He's raised a massive amount of that. Um, and then we're about to start giving just a little bit of money to our child care director. So there's about six folks that receive some sort of funding. I mean, Tony and I would receive the largest amount, uh, but it's not even it's not even close to part-time right now. So... I need to get paid more. I say this humbly. We ignored the local association, but they are in complete doctrinal mess. So I mean, they teach. They'd be fine with heresy. So we nothing to do with them. Didn't really feel like it was even a problem. The other local churches have been great. Like I, I was raised up and planted out of a church locally, and then uh, Summit Church that's there. So Open Doors the Church I was sent out of. They've been very supportive. Summit Church has given us um, great support, even financial support, and then Vintage Twenty One. 
So most of the churches have been just great. I know that's not the story for everybody. I feel like Raleigh has a great group of churches that really want each other to succeed and and there's a lot of good things. There's some really healthy churches in, in the Raleigh area, so it's been it's been a blessing for us. I don't know if you'd add anything to that. We started meeting in his home in June, and so we did basically two two full months of that, and then August was a lot of planning, getting ready. We actually started meeting in the building ahead of time to kind of get ready. Yeah, we were in a school, so to get ready for setup and, and all the things that we'd have to do. Um, so it was about two and a half months, but that was because it went faster than we were expecting. Part of it, we lament because we had such a close core team. It kind of was sad to launch so quickly, but was it was necessary at that point. So, yeah, yes, ma'am. Yeah, on the on the launch, it had just gotten to the point where we were continuing to invite people in that we could no longer fit in a home. And, fifty people in a home. Yeah, so we had fifty, and so it was at that point. It was like, well, we we got to go ahead and launch. Um, we just can't even fit. We can't fit in here anymore. We wanted to wait till January. Yeah, we just, we just couldn't. As far as the team selection, and Tony can maybe speak a little bit to that, but we, re- I, th- I mean, think we really looked for that theological, philosophical, and and you know relational unity, so that we um, kind of fit, had the same theology and the same philosophy that we would kind of. So it was helpful because Tony and I had a connection, and so that's how we got connected as far as theology and everything. And then the other, the third elder, he and I went through the same elder training at the same local church. Ideally, for this, it would be one church raising up a team of folks in that church so that they, they already have that in place of we know like the elders of that church are saying you're qualified, you're ready to go, and that they have that unity already in place. If you don't have that, that's what I would look for is that, that theological, philosophical, and relational unity so that when you plant, you, you know you're, you know that this team is going to be cohesive and, and ready to, to plant. 